0: Part 2, Chapter 2 of Israel's Faith. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scott Josephson. Israel's Faith by Nathan Solomon Joseph. The Ten Commandments. When children are young, their wise parents do not teach them too many things at first, lest they might forget them. But they tell them first the few things which are the most important. And as they get older, they go on teaching them more and more, little by little. And God treated the children of Israel in the same wise way. He did not tell them all the law at once, but began with the Ten Commandments, because, although the most important, they were quite easy and simple and could be understood and obeyed by everyone. 1. I am the Lord thy God, who has brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 2. Thou shalt make no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thyself any graven image, or any likeness of anything, that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow thyself down to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, unto the third and fourth generations of them that hate me, and showing kindness unto the thousandth generation of them that love me and keep my commandments. 3. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless, that taketh his name in vain. 4. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor, and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath, in honor of the Lord thy God. On it thou shalt not do any work, neither thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor the stranger that is within thy gate. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. 5. Honor thy father and thy mother, in order that thy days may be prolonged upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. 6. Thou shalt not kill. 7. Thou shalt not commit adultery. 8. Thou shalt not steal. 9. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. 10. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. The First Commandment God began the commandments by telling the Israelites that he was the same God who saved them from the Egyptians. God might have told the children of Israel that he was the God who had created all the world. But they could not have understood that half so well as the fact which they had so lately experienced, that he was the God who had saved them from slavery, and that he alone was worthy to be the Lord their God. The Second Commandment In the Second Commandment, God tells the Israelites that they shall have no other gods but him, that they shall make no idols, nor bow down to images. And then God tells them something about Himself. He tells them that He is a just God who punishes the wicked, and that He is also a merciful God who is good and kind to all who love Him and obey His laws. THE THIRD COMMANDMENT The third commandment forbids us to swear falsely, forbids us to swear at all, unless it be necessary to do so in the interest of truth. In the courts of law, people who give evidence have to promise to speak the truth and they call God to witness that every word they are about to speak is true. This is called swearing or taking an oath. If after taking the oath they say anything untrue, they are guilty of perjury or false swearing. People must never swear except when ordered to do so by law. If they swear without it being necessary they take the name of God in vain. But taking the name of God in vain has yet another meaning. If we pray to God without thinking about what we are saying, or if we pray in a hurried, careless manner, only anxious to get through our prayers, or if we laugh or gossip in the synagogue, we take God's name in vain. The Fourth Commandment The Fourth Commandment is a very long one. You who have lessons all the week, will no doubt think this is a very pleasant commandment, and one very easy to obey, and perhaps you will think that God need only have ordered the Israelites to rest on the seventh day without going into so many particulars. Yet there are plenty of people who break this law and keep no Sabbath, but go on week after week, working and working and working, without having any day of rest. They either forget or will not remember that they are disobeying God. Now God tells us very plainly that we must do all our work on six days of the week, but that the seventh is the Sabbath or day of rest, and that neither we nor our servants nor even our cattle should do any sort of work that day. And He tells us that after having made all things in six days. He Himself rested on the seventh day, and thus hallowed the Sabbath by His own example. The world is so full of life and work that we are apt to forget how great a blessing is rest. What would you be, I wonder, without rest? How do you think you would get on if, when tired out, you were to lie down and be unable to sleep, or if, when dreadfully fatigued, some cruel person were to come and tell you you must go on playing or running or jumping, whether you liked it or not? Do you think you would enjoy it? When tired out and ready for a nice refreshing sleep? I think not. And is it not wonderful how, without trying at all, you can go to sleep, and how you wake up feeling fresh and vigorous and ready for fun, just as if you had never been fatigued, or how, after a long, tiring walk, you sit down and rest, and then feel quite strong again and ready for another long walk? Do you wonder that God should have blessed the day of rest and made it holy? But if you only have to learn lessons or do needlework and no other very hard work with your head or your hands, find rest so pleasant, how must it be with grown-up people who have to work hard for their living all the week? How delighted they ought to be when Friday evening comes and they feel that they need not, cannot, and dare not do any more work for a whole day. Not only would they enjoy the rest for which they have worked so hard, But when the time comes for them to set to work again, they would enjoy their work all the more, just as you feel more inclined for a nice romp after you wake up from a sound sleep. You may feel quite sure that those who do not keep the Sabbath do not half enjoy their lives. Now, most religions besides ours have a Sabbath, although, as you know, some keep it on a different day. But they don't keep the Sabbath as we do, and I dare say you will ask how we ought to keep it. You might be inclined to say that, as it is a day of rest, people should lie in bed all Sabbath, and so have a nice long day of idleness. But if you look at the fourth commandment, you will find that the seventh day is called the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. Now this shows that we ought to spend at least some part of the Sabbath in service of God, in reflecting about Him and His wonderful works, and in praising and thanking Him for His goodness. But you must not imagine that the Sabbath is to be, as some of our neighbors make it, a sad day on which you may not laugh or be merry or read pleasant books. Our religion is a happy religion and a natural one, and you are meant to be happy and natural on the Sabbath day. When you have done your religious duties, you may play as much as you like. There are some things which you may not do, even though they be for enjoyment. But there are plenty of pleasures left to you for the Sabbath, and it must be not only a day of rest and quiet thought, but a day of joy and gladness. The Fifth Commandment To honor one's parents means much more than merely paying them respect. It means that we must do whatever they tell us willingly, and even without asking why. It means that we must follow their good advice. It means that we must care for them lovingly when they grow old or ill or infirm as lovingly as they cared for us when we were young and helpless. It means that we must bear in mind their wishes when we are away from them, and even long after they are dead. It means that we must never do anything to dishonor their good name. And if we obey this command, God promises us that our days shall be long in the land that he giveth us. The Sixth Commandment Thou shalt not commit murder is one of the most important laws in the Bible. It was not a new law when God gave it on Sinai. He gave the same law to Noah when he and his family came out of the ark. Obedience to this law makes the great difference between savages and civilized men. Among barbarians, life is never safe. One man hates another or envies his property, and he thinks nothing of killing him if he be the stronger man. We who are civilized are to do all in our power to protect and save life. We may not stand by quietly and see a fellow being perish, if we can assist him. When you read this commandment, you must not think that it does not apply to you, to whom the horrid thought of murdering a fellow creature would never occur. But remember that it bids you assist your poor and suffering fellow creatures and do all that is in your power to help them to live. The Seventh Commandment. This commandment bids husbands and wives to be faithful, true and and kind to one another. The Eighth Commandment There are unfortunately a great number of people who steal rather than work for a living. If they are found out, they are sent to prison, or otherwise punished, and there are people who have actually spent the greater part of their lives in prison, having been so often found guilty of theft. Perhaps they have been the children of bad, dishonest parents, and have seen all sorts of wickedness in their young days. Not that this excuses them, but it accounts for their wickedness, which would otherwise be hard to understand. The protection of human life was one of the greatest marks of distinction between savages and civilized men. The protection of property is another such mark of distinction. If property were not safe, no one would care to work hard to make money or amass wealth. And people would only care to work enough for their use from day to day, lest some one stronger than they should come and rob them of all they have saved. Saving or thrift, as it is called, is of great importance to the welfare of the world. For without thrift in good times we might starve when the bad times come. And indeed this really happens in barbarous countries, even in our own days. Property not being safe against thieves, the people do not care to save, but eat and use all that they produce. When a bad harvest comes, they have saved nothing, and they starve to death. So you see the importance of thrift, and as thrift cannot exist unless property is safe, you see also the importance of the law, thou shalt not steal. Other parts of the Bible contain laws on the same subject, and give us particulars of the punishment of theft. In Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we are commanded to be just in business matters and to give full weight and true measure. A thief, if the articles stolen were found with him, had to pay twice the value of what he had taken. And if he stole a living animal and slew it, he had to restore five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. If he had not the means of paying, he was sold as a slave, and this was the origin of what we now call... Penal servitude, which means imprisonment for a certain term of years with hard labor. The Ninth Commandment When the Jews lived in their own country in Palestine, and a witness gave evidence affecting the life of a prisoner, the judges reminded the witness of the duty of speaking the exact truth, and told him that he who destroyed one single human life was as guilty as if he had destroyed the whole world. It is almost impossible to imagine anyone guilty of so terrible a sin as bearing false witness against another, and yet there have been many cases in which people have even been condemned to death upon evidence falsely given. God has ordained in His law that the perjurer is to suffer the same punishment as the intended victim would have suffered if the perjurer's evidence had held good. If the witness be a false witness and has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do unto him as he had thought to have done unto his brother. Unfortunately, bearing false witness against a neighbor is a rather common everyday sin. When you hear children speaking against one another, making much of their playmates little faults, or taking away their characters, although they are not perjurers, yet they bear false witness against their neighbors, nothing is more valuable to anyone than character, and yet nothing is so easily injured, by a chance word, perhaps carelessly or thoughtlessly spoken. Gossips who are too idle to work are never too idle to talk, and they dearly love a little scandal about their neighbors. They mean it to be harmless enough and have perhaps no notion of hurting anyone, but the harmless scandal, every time it is repeated, becomes greater and greater, exaggerated each time it is spoken, till, at last, it is by no means harmless for it destroys a good character. The Tenth Commandment Covetousness is the root of almost every sin. We are ordered not to covet anything that is our neighbor's, and many people have thought this rather an unreasonable law, because they have not understood it properly. The sin of coveting consists not in your wishing for a similar article, but for the same article that your neighbor has. His house, for example, could not be yours unless you somehow deprived him of it, and in order to do this you might be induced to do him some wrong. King Ahab, the Bible tells us, coveted the vineyard of Naboth, and because Naboth would not sell it to him, the king's wife Jezebel procured some wicked men to give false evidence that Naboth had committed a fearful crime against God, and the poor man was stoned to death. And then Ahab took possession of the vineyard he had so longed for. Ahab and Jezebel were both very wicked people, so you are perhaps not much surprised at their being covetous. But even the great and good King David, in a moment of blind passion, committed a terrible sin through coveting his neighbor's wife, and he was fearfully punished in consequence. So you see to what covetousness may lead us. There is no harm in being ambitious. That is, in wanting to grow greater or richer, or more comfortable, and to have nice things about us. The harm is in letting the ambition become a passion, and letting the passions so get the better of us, that we don't mind what we do so long as we get what we want. War and murder, and theft and misery, and indeed, almost every evil in the world, would vanish if people would only obey the Tenth Commandment. End of Part 2, Chapter 2. Recording by Scott Josephson.